right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the engagement. It's been great. I'm looking forward today to talking to Barbara Katsos of Jeru Glass, Director of Marketing and PR. Barbara, did I goof up your name too badly? <laughs> no, that's it. You got it right. Okay, Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. You're welcome. It's great to have you. And we were talking beforehand. When did we meet? Seven years ago, maybe? It was shortly after I started in the industry. Yeah, in 2014. Yeah, I was there. And I don't know. Do you remember how we got in touch with each other? I was calling on Giroux because I was in Southern California. Do you remember how that happened? It was through social media. That's right. Yeah, we have a fabulous guy that does our social media posts for us. And um, you saw something and reached out to me, I think maybe on LinkedIn or maybe even Twitter. Yeah. No, that's right. It was LinkedIn, I believe. And the person that, that was doing your social media was also very engaged with me and then put the two, two of us together to talk marketing, right? Right, right. That's Andy Phipps, my social media guy. Yeah, he does a fabulous job. Andy so Phipps. then you came into the LA office, I remember. Correct, I did. I came into the LA office and I had also visited, I think I had visited with um, Carl and Cindy from Diamond Fusion. And, and then I think you guys have a table with that coding on it. We were talking about anyway. So it's great. So we've known each other for a little bit. And so um, I am looking forward to talking to you. So why don't you introduce yourself further? Tell us where you're from, what your background is, where you work, your education, etc. We'll get into the discussion. Okay, fine. Well, I'm originally from Montreal, Canada. I moved to California when I was 20. I had started on my educational path in Canada thinking I was going to go into law and then migrated over to psychology and um, was partly started through my, uh, my undergrad degree in Canada when I suddenly couldn't turn down an offer to come to California to attend my cousin's wedding. My parents had gotten their green cards and they decided they were going to come down here and I had said, no, I'm going to stay in Canada, finish my degree. I'll think about it when I'm done in a few years. And they didn't like that answer. They said, no, you go to your cousin's wedding and see what you're saying no to. And they were very smart in doing that because that plane was still circling over that LAX airport. And I'm looking at the palm trees and the beaches down below. And before we even landed, I was rethinking my dumb decision. thinking, <laughs> I hate the cold. I hate the snow. Maybe I ought to have an open mind once I actually exit the plane. I love so, it. Um, all that was history. My cousin went off on her honeymoon and I moved into her bedroom and lived with my aunt and uncle until my parents joined me. Really? So, yeah. So I took a few classes as a non-resident at a few different schools. And then when I was uh, able to qualify as a resident tuition situation, which was a whole lot more affordable, I transferred to UCLA as a transfer student in psychology. And, um, at the time, I was working full-time as a film technician at night. I worked for MGM Studios developing movies from 7.30 at night till 4 in the morning. Went wow. home, got some sleep, went up and went to class and did that till I finished my, my undergrad at UCLA in psychology. And the timing was perfect because that industry was just about to take the switch over to digital processing and digital you know, films. So I got out with, while the getting was good. And um, I was a union member, a film technician. Wow. IATSE, International Alliance of Theater and Stage Employees Union. And uh, then, I, then I went to grad school. I went to uh, the Claremont Graduate School, it was called at the time, the School of Business. And the plan was that I was going to get a PhD in organizational psychology. And part of the program entailed me getting an MBA before I got the PhD. So I majored in marketing, which I thought was the most people-oriented business major I could pick. And um, by the time I got my MBA, I decided enough was enough. I really didn't want to become an academic or a professor, and that having the MBA would get me my foot into business. And at that time, the school had um, started migrating towards changing its name. One of my professors was Peter Drucker who I heard you mention on your first podcast. Peter Drucker was one of your profs? He was, I was a research assistant for him. And now the school is named after him. 
the Peter F. Drucker Center for Management. I am yeah. so I'm so jealous. So you were a research assistant for Peter Drucker. So you interacted with Peter Drucker. I did, and I was also a student, which was a more of a memorable experience than actually being a research assistant, reading the papers that people would submit for his class, the case analyses. Yeah, I could I could ask questions on the rest of the podcast just about that. I, okay, I, we'll we'll carry that on offline then. <laughs> but you know what? I just uh, let me just digress for a second. Um, we were on a um, we've implemented a, a new operating system called Entrepreneurial Operating System at, at our business EOS, and um, I am the marketing person now. And I was at part of my Do marketing it. plan. I stayed right up front in the vision. I said I. I'm a student of Peter Drucker in this regard. Peter Drucker wow. said, Peter Drucker said, there's only two purposes for business, innovation and marketing. Everything else is a cost. The sole purpose of a business is to gain, win, gain, retain, and provide value to a customer. And I said, there, there's no boxes to check. There's no people to put in any position without a customer and you get a customer by creating um, awareness and visibility. And I think that's a lot of what marketing is about. Right. So I'm enamored with that background. I'll stop now, but keep going. So you, you got an MBA from Claremont and you were a, uh, a research assistant for Peter Drucker. Well, I was a, um, a fellowship student, which meant that my tuition was paid for. So I had to earn the rest of it by putting in 20 hours a week at the school Sometimes I was a teaching assistant or a research assistant or somebody who showed new potential students around the campus. And one of the semesters I was there of the, of the two years that I was there was to be his research assistant. But it's interesting. We keep bringing up his name because the first time I popped my head into Giroux Glass's offices, I saw a big sign on the wall with a picture of Peter Drucker's face. Wow. And it was his famous quote that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yes. And culture is something that Giroux Glass takes so seriously. I mean, we are an employee-owned company now, and it's all about the unique type of culture we have at that company. We're employee-owned. Everybody is an owner. Everybody feels responsible for the outcome and the successes of the business. And uh, having seen that, that quote of his and a picture of his face on the wall over a copy machine the first day I went in there, I think was a pretty good, uh, you know, predictor of the future of what I was walking into culture wise. Yeah, that, yeah, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. The whole cult. So, so you've already said, so you work for Giroux Glass. So your, your education, you were talking about getting your MBA, um, so, and that you didn't want to be a PhD, you figured out, I don't want to be a PhD, I want to get into business. So, right. so um, I led a very circuitous path to let, let, my, let myself end up in construction. I'll, I'll tell you where I work. So I was flat out of MBA school. I worked in technology for LA Cellular. That was the first big uh, cellular tel telephone company in Los Angeles. And I remember when we celebrated having reached 100,000 subscribers who had car phones at that time, those mammoth things that went under your passenger seat. And um, that was a huge, I remember, a big uh, landmark for us to hit 100,000 people. Now, who doesn't have one, right? Yeah. So I left that and um, I moved up to the Bay Area for a, th for a few years from Los Angeles. I moved to the San Francisco area and um, I was just consulting at that time. I was doing marketing consulting for different companies. I remember one of my first early accounts was uh, uh, the precursor to Costco. And uh, I did direct mail programs for them, which is, of course, the cutting edge marketing at that time. Yeah. Direct mail. I'm, you know, I rode to the office on my dinosaur. I know I'm dating myself now. <laughs> so then I came back to L.A. and I got a job with uh, a few different Fortune 200 companies. I came back and I went to work for Avery Dennison mm -hmm. and I was a product manager for consumer goods, specifically for kids back to school supplies. And that was so much fun because it followed fashion trends and pretty much I was my own little small business unit. Mm -hmm. I had to think up what would be the hot school trends for next year. I would make prototypes of products. I would show them to focus groups 
and we'd have to sell them into buyers at back to school buying time long <laughs> before we even knew how last year's back to school sales went. So it was pretty risky, but I remember coming out with animal print fabric covered binders and, you know, um, environmental themed sheet dividers. So that was very creative and that was very fun. And I got wooed away from that job to go work for uh, another company. Uh, this I worked for Epson in the consumer product group for uh, ink supplies that feed into printers. Mm -hmm. So paper and ink. And I went from being as wild and crazy as I could be with fashion to just how white is the white of your paper? I mean, that <laughs> is technically something they measure on paper. The thickness, you know, the flexibility factor, the whiteness factor. Of course, the whiter it is, the better it reproduces photos. So it was all about printing photos. And I stayed there for probably too long. I stayed at that company for 14 years, wow. mostly because after I started working for them, they moved to my backyard. And in LA, one of the best perks you could ever get working for a company is how, how good is your commute? And yeah, it was how close literally is it? in my backyard. Wow. So I stayed there a very long time. And I started with uh, working in the supplies group. And then I identified a vertical market known as scrapbooking. And um, I started developing that market, trying to teach very non-tech people, the scrapbooking users of the world, moms who love to take pictures of their kids and put them in scrapbooks, the world of technology. And my mission was to teach them how to do it using technology so that they could print their pages and not have to layer photos and what I called, you know, the tchotchke stuff metal little brads and decorations and ribbons. No, you could do this all with technology. So I developed a team of teachers that went across the country teaching at scrapbooking classes, how to use Photoshop, how to use technology. And um, then, the tech, you know, then the industry started to slow down. People started printing less. And um, I started focusing on other things besides just scrapbooking. And then they decided to reorg and I was booted out of my job after 14 years working for the company. Mm. So I took that as, you know, a, a message from the gods to travel for a year, which okay. I did. Wow. And I enjoyed that. And finally, when I came back, a friend of mine said, hey, they've got a position to work for Broadcom developing web content for Broadcom. And um, I thought, okay, well, I haven't really started looking for a job yet, but this is kind of landing in my lap. Let me go and interview. I got the job. It was a consulting gig for six months. And it was a very odd job because it was kind of a precursor to what I, I think about now when I think about marketing for this company. The audience was either completely high IQ brainiac or people that were just lay people looking into whether or not they wanted to invest in the company. And given that they made 98% of all consumer chips that go into consumer products, that was something that it was a very fine line to toggle. So you had to write content for the web and for their website in terms of white papers that would be of interest to PhDs. And 77% of their employees had PhDs in oh very technical fields. Or people who just thought, huh, is this a good place to dump some money for a while? So six months of that, I'd had enough with that and decided I was going to look for another job. But at this point, I hadn't interviewed in 15 years. So mm -hmm. I thought, I need to get some interview practice. I haven't done this since before Epson. And I saw an ad for a construction job in downtown LA. And I thought, what the heck? Let me go for it. I know absolutely nothing about construction. I don't want to commute all the way to downtown LA, which is a one-hour drive for me. And uh, just for the practice, I went in to go and talk with the women and a few men of Jeru Glass at that time. So I went in and met with the women who led the company at that time. And I absolutely fell in love with everybody I spoke to. I sat at that same table you were describing, the big round table with the coding on it. Mm -hmm. And um, at a certain point, I started saying to myself, you know, I ought to pay attention to the way I'm answering these questions. This is pretty interesting. This is women in a male-dominated field. And oh my God, look at the projects they do. They had taken me on a walk down a hallway, <clears throat> excuse me, where a lot of the project managers had beautiful images of the projects they had worked on. And I'm looking at the skywalk over the Grand Canyon and these unbelievable private residences, you know, mansions that jut out over the ocean and the Staples Center and the Getty Museum and all these wonderful places. And I've always been a huge fan of architecture. <laughs> 
And I'm looking at these going, oh my God, to have something to do with these projects would be mind boggling. At the end of the interview, I was talking to my, my current boss, CEO and president now, Natalie Lometico. At yeah. that time, she was the CFO. Yep. She had not yet become the CEO yet. That was only going to happen about six months, no, nine months later. And I accepted the job. Right there. Right there and then. And was what it? I didn't know, that was in mid-February. They had a big event scheduled for uh, Women in Construction Week, which was the first week of March. And they had a venue, but that was it. So I hit the ground running. I remember we, they said, okay, well, could you start tomorrow? Because we've got this big event. We've got people we've invited. And basically, they just know they're coming to something. We don't have it put together yet. So part of marketing is, of course, event planning and a job like mine. And uh, we put together a great program in an architecturally interesting building that happened to be right across the street that they had selected. And we had a lunch and we had speakers, including one woman who was an original Rosie the Riveter, because I have a friend who worked at Boeing who had a connection to this 90-something-year-old woman who'd worked at Boeing. And so that was a good success. And that was like, you know, throwing me right into, you know, into it, into, into the heart of it. Probably the most exciting time to be a female in construction is in Women in Construction Week. And it's always the first week of, of March when it's International Women's Day. So I, I never looked back. I loved it. That's a and great story. The thing I realized that I loved most about this industry for marketing, John, is you. it's like people say, if you're a salesman, you can sell in any industry. If you're a marketing person and you do your homework and you get to know the industry, you can also market any industry. I've marketed to consumers. I've marketed to business. I've marketed services in the past. But this industry is completely different. But what I realize I love most about it is how long what you do leaves an impression. Mm -hmm. When I worked in consumer products for technology, that was the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. You are a blip on the radar. You've got the latest and greatest product that is going to be the latest and greatest for what, five minutes? Until something newer, blingier, faster comes out. Before the ink is even dry on the packaging, you've fought to get on a, a consumer shelf somewhere at retail. It's already outdated by somebody else who's come out with something better, faster, blingier. In construction, for years, you can drive through the city where your buildings are, are built and point to that and say, we built that. Yeah. It still has the classic lines. It's still a source of pride for the company, for the city, for the organization who works in there, for the developer who built it. And there's no fleeting nature of it. It's there forever. And every, every decision you make is going to last a long time and be visibly present for everybody who experiences the building. That's and I love that about it. I love that about it too, Barbara. I, I love the visual nature, the visual aesthetic, the permanence, the defining, you know, it is the this building skin is the defining, you know, exterior part of the building. So th this is a great, so you had no construct. So um, if I may, you are unique in two ways. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're unique in two ways. Number one, you're a marketer in construction, specifically a marketer in a specialty trade contractor. And number two, you're a woman in a male-dominated field, correct? Correct. Yeah, so it must have been interesting to enter that. By the way, was Anne part of the original interview? Was who? Anne, the former owner of Giroux? No, she was not. She wasn't there present at that day, although I met her that first week. Um, it's interesting that she wasn't one that, uh, readily accepted the idea of hiring a marketing person. It was completely Natalie who I give really? credit for bringing that in. Yeah. And then other people at the company, there was, uh, our COO at that time was the uh, Stephanie Lamb who was running the, our Vegas office. Mm -hmm. And we had, um, our director of HR and our legal person was another woman and there were various other women that I had met while there. I don't even think that I interviewed with any male while I was in that interview. And I thought, wow, this is odd. I know that construction is so um, there's such a small percentage of women in the industry, yet I'm only meeting with women here. But they weren't just the HR people. They were, you know, the leaders of the company. 
So that was very unique. And I think that told me a lot about this company. Yeah, that's a lot of the DNA of the company. So just briefly, before I get into some other questions here, for those who may not know, tell us who Giroud Glass is, what Giroud Glass does. Okay. Uh, Giroud Glass is a glazing company that is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. It was started in 1946 in downtown LA by a guy who was named Louis Giroux. And uh, he ran the company for quite a long time until he decided that he wanted to retire and sell, sell the business, sell the company. And the woman who bought the company was the lady who, who took over from Louis back in 1991. Anne Merrily Mural was the lady who bought the company as part of a real estate transaction. She was somebody who bought and fixed up buildings around downtown LA, specifically around the area of USC. She was a diehard USC alumna and her kids went to USC and her grandkids went to USC and she wanted to help ensure that the area that had fallen into some state of disrepair and not a great reputation for being very safe, close to downtown LA, uh, she wanted to make it more beautiful. So she had been consistently buying buildings, fixing them up and renting them out, mostly to students. And so she found this building that she wanted to buy and Louis owned it. And um, he said, yes, I'll sell it to you as part of a deal. I will sell you the building that you want if you buy all six in the bundle. And oh, by the way, this little glass company I operate, which had <laughs> 10 employees, earned $800,000 a year and had been around for at that point, you know, 40 something years. Wow. So she said, well, I don't know anything about running a glass company, but I've done a lot of renovations in my time. She was in her fifties at that point. She's in her nineties now. And she goes, sure, I'll do that. I'll run the company for a year and um, we'll see how it goes. Well, she bought the six buildings. One of them is still the, the headquarters in, in which we operate. Uh, she had the little shop where he was operating at. It was a few blocks away from where we are now. We eventually moved over to this building in the 80s. But um, we're because it's our 75th anniversary, we're about to go live with a history of the company as a downloadable ebook on our website. Everybody could download that if they want to get the details with a timeline. So Anne Merrily operated the business and slowly over the years, she brought it up to the point of it getting $70 million in sales right before the big recession in 2007 and eight. And a large part of that crash for us was having been involved in Las Vegas in the city center project. But we took great pride in the fact that we completed everything we had committed to completing. We paid every vendor. We never let anybody go unpaid. And um, we had to let people go at that time. But we had expanded to Vegas at that point. Uh, we also, under Anne Merrily's guidance, expanded to Fresno, California. And um, by 2015, it was Nataline who took over as CEO and president. And the, you know, making up for lost revenue after the recession started to slowly climb its way back up. And at that point, when I started, I think we were at about 30 million and we're still close to approaching the point where we were at our peak. But um, this is the year where we will surpass it, according to our plans. So it's been an interesting road back. Wow. Congratulations. That is a Thank spectacular you. story. And so the, Anne took the, the company she didn't know anything about because she wanted buildings from 800,000 to 70 million in 20 years, basically. That's pretty incredible. And so a 75 year history. That's great. Um, congratulations on the growth. Um, I know Drew is an employee owned company, correct? Yes, uh, we became employee-owned in 2017. We, be, we became 100% employee-owned in 2017. It takes a little while to get to that 100 percentage. Yeah, that was an interesting, um, an interesting transition for the company as well because uh, Anne Merrily, getting on in age as she was, knew that she wanted to sell the company. And she started looking for a buyer. And at that point, she had a great staff in place. She had 
uh, Natalie as her CFO, and she had a lot of people who'd worked for the company for a very long time. Bob Burkhammer and Bob mm-hmm. Linford was back at that time, who'd been there and come back. And everybody that she brought in as a potential new owner got the big thumbs down from the, the staff working there at the time. And then finally, she realized that, well, why am I, why am I looking to have someone else take over? Why not reward the people who have worked so hard to make the company the, the success that it is today and give it back to the people who have built Giroux Glass? So that's when she decided uh, learning about ESOPs and the benefits that it reaps the employees, basically giving them their own retirement plan. She wanted to be sure that everybody who worked for the company would be taken care of. And um, she decided to start the transition process. So Natalie's been a big part of us becoming an ESOP-owned company, along with our director of finance, Hike Kachatrian. And um, we, we reached that goal in 2017. And it's a big sales plus when it comes to trying to attract talent, as you know, in a time when it's so hard to find good help. It is. When people know that they're thinking about working for an employee-owned company, it's it's a big perk. That's good to know. And you said you actually expanded, you hired people during COVID, right? We opened up two new offices during COVID. Amazing. We opened up in Phoenix and we expanded to a much bigger space and bought a new building in Fresno. And we opened up a new office in Orange County. So there was a lot going. The the works were in the plans. We couldn't let COVID stop us. We did it all very safely. And uh, yeah, we grew. Sounds like you're more diverse now than you were when it was LA and Vegas as well. You've got offices in multiple locations in Southern California. And then you still have Vegas, right? Oh, yes. And you have Phoenix. So, And you're doing service glass and contract glass, high-end residential and commercial. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, And that's one thing I should mention. When Louis Drew was running his little business at $800,000 a year, all he did was service and repair work. Mm -hmm. So when Ann Mayor Lee came in, she brought on a team that focused on high-end residential. And her famous quote about, well, why don't we get into commercial? If you're doing one light on a storefront on, on a ground level of a building... Well, isn't doing a whole curtain wall, just many more of that stacked up on top of each other. Let's just, let's do that. That's funny. She had the right idea and she brought in the right team and she figured out with the right team how to get that done. That's, that's great. What a great story. Um, Let's run down this path for a minute about two things. One is being a marketing professional in the construction field. And then after that, or as we're talking about that, let's talk about um, your substantive work in regards to women in construction. That's okay. Okay. So um, we talked about this a little bit. Um, What's your, the role of the marketer is somewhat misunderstood. Talk to me about, you know, the value that marketing brings to the table um, as opposed to it being viewed oftentimes as a, is a necessary evil or something that really shouldn't be part of construction. What's your whole philosophy and experience behind that? Oh boy. Don't get me started now, John. (laughs) Um, I thought thought you were going to say as it's often merged with um, business development, because they are completely different and separate roles. Although I often meet people who say they do both. And I'm, I'm thinking yeah, because they, they haven't decided to make the investment in, having somebody dedicated to just both fields separately. Um, Marketing, I think, is still largely misunderstood in the industry. And I think that's partly why Giroux was, was, um, you know, very, very smart in being ahead of the curve like they are in so many other things in bringing in a marketing person. And I think that might have been why there was some initial resistance initially within the company uh, to bringing somebody on because people didn't get it. The role of marketing is to create awareness for the brand and to help create the demand for your service. It's not saying like a business development person, oh, um, you know, they're the ones out there looking to see what jobs are being bid right now. What new development is about to happen? How can we can be, how do we be sure that we're on the radar for that GC to invite us to bid or for that developer to know that we would be somebody that we would want to have work on our building? It's us creating the brand awareness for anybody who wants to think about uh, what can our company do for them. 
already having a place to go, like a website, like consistently seeing our name all over the internet, in PR, in social media, in electronic transmissions that we send, send out to establish in people's mind that we are the company that you want to hire for the product, for the, for, the, for the project, I meant to say, before you've even decided that you might even have a project for us to bid on. So it's establishing in everybody's mind what our skill set is, where we excel, and why you would want to be the ones to come to us for that particular project. So people seem to think before that, well, you don't really need marketing because everything in this industry is kind of based on relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody's worked with our company in the past, then they will know that we can do the job and they'll come to us in the future. Well, that's great in terms of you and that one particular GC, but that doesn't necessarily um, lay the groundwork for a very good growth strategy. You know, you've got to keep putting those feelers out there. You've got to keep showing how you're evolving over time. Like you said, we started as a little repair shop. If somebody had a relationship with us in the 1960s, how would they know we built the skywalk or we do commercial work or we do these tricky challenges that most other glazers don't want to take on if they didn't see what we put out about it out in that big world called the internet and on our website. So, um, Marketing and branding, you know, I came in and I was also like the branding police. <laughs> just, just like you wouldn't see a huge brand like Coke or Pepsi have 40 versions of their logo floating out throughout the world. There is one logo that looks the same wherever you see it. You want to be sure that what you see is this quality every single time you see it. You know, we put out marketing brand guidelines. We're the ones who make sure that every time you see our logo, it's presented in the way that's the right way for it to be affiliated with us, especially in a world where there's so much, um, you know, copycat behavior going on or spam emails. If you got something with some desecrated version of our logo, you would know that that was not a, a, mm -hmm. a transmission that came from our company legitimately. So it's part of your brand is to represent yourself completely, consistently and professionally every single time somebody on the outside world comes into contact with your company. That's outstanding. Yeah. Completely consistently. I like that. We, um, you mentioned visibility. I, I always say, you know, in it, in it's very basic definition, um, marketing is about creating visibility and awareness. Right. And I like how you, you mentioned that about, you know, visibility for your brand and uh, that certainly plays to culture as well. So that's good. So did in your role as right, you were the first marketer at Giroud Glass, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's and right. so, and so um, you had the support of Nataline, who was the CFO at the time, um, who is forward thinking. Um, but did it take a while then to be kind of understood and embraced there as to the power mm. of that marketing work. And, and now is it more institutionalized? Or is it more second nature that of course, Barbara's a critical part of the team? Yeah, I think we've slowly reached that point, although it's been kind of a windy road to get there. Um, you know, I feel like a large part of my job is trying to elicit information from people who are very, very busy people. I know mm -hmm. that we're all busy. But I think the people at my company have slowly come to understand that if I'm asking them information and a lot of details about a project, it's for a good reason. It's about to get blasted somewhere in a case study, in a project gallery, in an award submission. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thrilled to say that we won subcontractor of the year last year for California by ENR wow. for a bunch of different projects, including... Um, the UCLA School of Business that we did last year that got completed during COVID. If we hadn't nagged the heck out of all these guys to give us all this information, and if they hadn't taken the time to sit down and very laboriously give us all the details on what was used and who worked on the, on the project and what were the challenges and answer these questions that by the time we're asking about them near the project's completion, they're going back into the recesses of their memory to come up with it you know, they're already on to their next 14 projects and not thinking about the one that was completed last year by the time we're submitting the, the award submission. 
but they've come to realize that, well, if they give us these details, they're going to see it on the website. Maybe we'll write a blog post about it. It'll be written up in a case study. Then we can highlight it. When somebody asks us if we're being considered to bid on a particular type of vertical market, like a hospital, what other hospitals have you done, Giroux Glass? Show us what you've done. Well, here's this ready-to-go electronic proof of everything we've done. It's helped people understand also the transition from paper to electronic. We don't need to have brochures, glossy brochures printed up and handed out anymore. Mm -hmm. You keep your website fresh and updated. You've always got the latest and greatest on your website that you can lead people to. Or a forward-thinking architect will already be checking out our website to see, hmm, what ideas can I get from people who've done a lot of this work? And they'll start looking at different websites. If you're not one of the websites showing a lot of gorgeous buildings in that type of vertical market, you probably will never make it to a bid invitation to a GC that's assigned to that project. The architect doesn't hire us, but you know they know quality and good work when they see it. Mm-hmm. And they might recommend us or they'll want to replicate something that we've done. And a smart GC will say, well, you know, why will we hire somebody to do something like someone else has done when we can get the originator of that mm. something to be the one to do it for us? So I think internally it's coming around, but I think that there are so many different construction companies that I meet that do not have a marketing person. And I think they're so missing an opportunity. There are so many fabulous marketing people out there that could change your world, change your business for you if you let them. That's a good word. And you are separating marketing. That's something we won't go down the path because there's this other topic that we want to get on. But marketing and business development, two different things. Are marketing and sales two different things as well? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sales is closing the deal. Marketing is letting people know they want to make the deal. You know, is giving mm-hmm. them the plant of an idea that you're the one they want to do the deal with. And sales will go in and negotiate the details and close it after after the idea has been planted, after they've already decided that you're the one they want to have the negotiating done with. Yeah. Sales is transactional really. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that that's good. So marketing, sales, business development. One more thing uh, before I move on to the women in construction topic, oh, yeah. is there a difference between PR and marketing? Yeah. Um, Public relations is mostly dealing with the media. I would say the big difference is who's the audience of your efforts. In PR, it's the media. In marketing, it's your consumer and your potential consumer. Got it. That's good to know. So they are all connected, but marketing and PR are slightly different. And well, uh, PR I- is kind of one more helper to get you help help you get the word out. Mm-hmm. So it's someone else speaking on your behalf about your company as opposed to marketing is speaking on behalf of ourselves about our own company. I see. That's good. You mentioned not creating brochures anymore and things like that. Um, Is, is digital marketing is obviously a big deal. What's my question here. We've got two forms of marketing outbound and inbound. How much has, has your support work and the, the work of the digital infrastructure helped with inbound marketing requests coming to you without you having to generate outbound communication? You know, it's hard to quantify because of the long route that construction takes to finally get to a bid. But if you have a good um, CRM system uh, that manages your outbound marketing, when people respond to your electronic outbound efforts and they respond electronically, that's measurable mm-hmm. because then you get a bid request or you get a question. Can somebody call me to do this job? That's measurable. What's harder to measure. And that's, I think what the hardest part for people to get about marketing is it's hard to quantify how much of what we do ends up being a direct impact on the ROI because we're out there blasting all the time and it doesn't always come back in the most direct route, like somebody clicking yes to an email saying, yes, use this promo code to make this purchase. Like you might do with a consumer product. Then you know specifically what campaign they're responding to with services and with something like construction, that's harder to quantify, but we do know, you know, how many times somebody can open up an email that we send them. We can see how long they read the page that we send them. 
if they click on it, how much time they spend reading it. Ultimately, do we end up getting more work with that contractor? You could maybe think, yes, it's because they have become more engaged with us over time. It's very integrated. Okay. I've got to ask this question because I literally am curious as to your opinion on it. It might be a complicated question. And if so, pass. If, because I literally, I'm asking myself this question too. To your point on how you measure, if you were asked in an executive leadership team to bring a scorecard metric to the table to measure marketing progress, any ideas of what the scorecard would be, or do you guys do that? Because it is so so linked up, it's hard to measure the ROI. Do you have any thoughts on that, or is that something you need to think about? A scorecard metric where you would say, "Here's my scorecard for the week." Um, that's a that's a really tough question. There are things that work like um, net promoter scores, where every single time that you work with a customer, you could have them fill out a survey. And that would give you, ask them to give you a rating and you could see how that rating would increase over time. We don't do that. Um, It's not something that's, it's standard to other industries. It's not standard to construction. As I'm saying, construction is really uncharted territory when it comes to marketing. Because that would be commonplace in so many other industries or, you know, reviews online. We have testimonials, but they don't result in a number. I guess all we can say is how much, given our investment in marketing over time, have our sales gone up? And I can tell you since 2014, when I started, they've been a straight vertical line upward. I'm not saying that marketing alone is responsible for it. We've grown in so many other ways. We've gone into new markets. We've, We've started doing new types of work. But marketing has been there from the beginning of that increase in in sales. So no, there isn't one number that we can point to like that. And I think we're a long ways off from the industry adopting anything like that. No, that's a very, very insightful uh, answer and and set of statements. Uh, One of the things I think of as you say that is, well, what if we pretended that we took all the marketing support materials away? What would what would the role of the business developer, salesperson, CRM look like? It would be quite different because you start to take for granted. One starts to take for granted those marketing materials that are now used to support, which never were before. So just being able to say, well, from 2014 till now, there's certainly a marketing component to this growth path, right? So no surprise there. um, For sure. I mean, John, we have a whole team. We have a social media person. We have my marketing coordinator who does all of the writing and award submissions. And she's just busy focused on getting the content written that we need written. We have a marketing consultant who also manages HubSpot. We use HubSpot. Um, He's constantly, he manages our website, uh, manages the website content, he handles HubSpot for us. We It takes a team. It takes a team. Bringing in one person is a little bit overwhelming. And that kind of was where I started with an assistant. But um, over time, as people understand the value, they, mm-hmm. will, they will invest in, and help to grow their companies. And going back in time to a business development person only is basically asking, what was it like 15 years ago? And I see somebody rolling along with a big briefcase on wheels, like the average attorney going into a courthouse. And that's how much marketing material he'd probably have to be schlepping behind him. (laughs) (laughs) Let's segue. This is a great conversation. I could go on and on about it, but I really want to talk about women in construction. Tell us about what your role has been for the last year. I know you've been involved further, the the name of the organization and kind of your, your passion and support behind women in construction, equal pay for equal jobs, et cetera? It's a, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, um, not just because I've always considered myself a feminist, but because it's this glaring inequity that exists. Here we are crying for laborers and workers and qualified professionals in construction. We can't hire enough people, yet only 10% of the entire workforce is made up of women. What if it was 50-50? We'd probably not even have that labor deficit that we're suffering from. If more young girls thinking about what they want to be when they grow up 
would say to themselves, yes, I want to be a project engineer. Yes, I want to be an architect. I think we wouldn't have this inequity that we have now and this glaring need for help. I've been involved in NAWIC, National Association of Women in Construction, specifically with the Los Angeles chapter for about the last five years. And the mission of this organization is to support women in the industry. That's basically it in a nutshell. How do we attract more women into the industry? How do we support the women who are in the industry? How do we help them become all that they can be to continue to climb the ladder and do more for the companies that they work for? I've been on the board of directors for the last few years, and I was the president for the last year. And that term is about to end. But it's a group of women that I recommend in every city. There's a chapter. And I recommend that every woman in construction becomes a member of that group. And I recommend that for any male listening to this podcast, that they support adamantly their top employees becoming members in NAWIC. If they're women in their company, even if they're project managers, even if they're in accounting or any higher level position than that, let let their women spend time. They're usually off hours, you know, one night a month at some kind of an event, getting to know other women in the industry and helping to promote that to, to young women to be attracted. And there's things that every company can do. They can bring in interns. They can have uh, young girls come in and, and shadow women on the job, give them a positive impression of what it is like to work in the industry. And I got to tell you, loving to play with um, toys like little bulldozers and cranes is not segregated genetically by sex. It's something that's a learned social behavior. And it's, it's parents and society that mold boys versus girls into being the ones that pursue those roles. There aren't too many women that see their little baby swaddled in pink blankets and say to themselves, God, I just picture her on a construction site. And I wish that would change. I wish that image would become more commonplace. Wow, thanks for that. That's inspiring to me to hear that. Um, you talk about 10%. Um, I know in civil engineering, for instance, they talk about gender balance. If you are gender balanced in civil engineering, you're about 85, 15. There's about 15% of civil engineering field is women. It may be a little higher now, but it's surprisingly not anywhere close to 50-50. Um, and I like the thing about um, some of the strategies involved. Let me ask you about NAWIC further. So you don't have to be a literal union carpenter or glazer or iron worker. You can be anybody associated in engineering or architecture, manufacturing, um, contracting. Is that true to be part of NAWIC? Any aspect of construction allows you, um, you know, the right to go to a meeting. And you don't have to become a paid card-carrying member to attend a meeting. We hope over time you do want to become a member, but it's open to all women in I every see. city. There's a, if you go online to NAWIC, followed by the name of your city, you will see where the local chapter is, and, and you will be embraced with open arms to attend a meeting anywhere or a that's, conference. That's good to know. Um, and Jeru certainly speaks with their actions in this manner, don't they? Because you have senior executives, you have managers, you have tech, technical people. Do you have field labor and shop labor that are women as well? We have one woman right now working on our San Bernardino fabrication plant. Yeah. I see. One. And at one point, I remember filming a woman that was working as a trainee for the union. But, you know, we... We don't, we don't lead people to becoming the union members. We hire people in the union in most of our markets, yeah. uh, not in every market. But I think the union could do a better job as well of attracting women to the industry. Yeah, that's a deep topic as well. Is there anything else you have to say? I mean, that's a very passionate point and very clearly stated. Any other thoughts about NEWIC or the role of women in construction or any? final words about that? I think we have made some progress, but that needle hasn't moved very far from 9% to 10% of the workforce being female from when I started. Hmm. And God, we've got such a long way to go. And I hope we can, we continue to see the needle grow. I, I needle move, I should say, I, you know, 
everybody in the in the organization is very passionate about it. And um, I think it just boils down to how much further down the road to having a career in construction can we eventually influence? Mm-hmm. It's got to start at a young age. The socialization of the female role starts from infancy, and there aren't too many um, professional work organizations that have an influence on how parents treat their children, but it's got to become so internalized that I, it's kind of self-fulfilling too, that the more we see it, the more commonplace it will become. The mm-hmm. more we see commonplace women being half the population on a field crew, then that won't be such a hurdle to overcome for parents to consider that their daughters might become engineers, project managers, architects. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. You know, that this, I'm sure you're well acquainted with the statistic. So somebody may fact check me and find me to be an error, but the last I heard, um, Fortune 500 companies with at least one woman on the board versus all male boards achieve 60% better financial outcomes, higher growth, more balance in their businesses than those otherwise, which is pretty insightful. I think there's even a state or a city, is it in California, that mandated i i hate that they had to legislate this but apparently if it's they anywhere did. it's probably it's probably the tech industry in san francisco i'm not sure but they i would said guess that, that's where that kid they said that you you legally you are required to have at least one woman on your board of directors thank you yeah. it's kind of sad to think that it has to be legally mandated for that to happen and it's not just from sheer wanting to have inclusivity and diversity on your board I'm thrilled to say that our board does have several women on the board. And that's also, you know, mirrored down into our executive management of the company. But why should we need a law for that? That should be like common practice. Exactly. Well said. Let's, um, I'm still even stuck on your comments about logos because I'm thinking about things like logo branding and sonic branding. And people don't even think about sonic branding, pings and tones that are consistent like the intel tone or different tones or music that relate to companies that's a whole other topic i liked your comments about logos being consistent i know if anybody if my um, administrative manager is listening to this she's going to be rolling her eyes and chuckling because she's found like six different versions of our who we are and why we exist on the server recently she's like which one is the real one i'm like "Ah, (laughs) i I experienced that when i started at drew glass as well hey let's not even go into olfactory there were retail stores that even had scents associated when you walked in that you know further pounded that brand imaging into your brain on every level visually olfactory sound wise Yeah. yeah that every time you hear that tone every time you smell that smell every day like you say, people have already been prepared to purchase from that brand, whether it's a contractor, a subcontractor, a retail product or not. They may not even know that they have been conditioned to purchase from that brand, but they've received the recognition already from all those other things that, as you say, it permeates. So, yeah, I've heard of Drew Glass or I've heard of Wheaton Sprague. Like where? I, I don't know. I love that. I don't know. I just know. Like that make I've seen that before. Exactly. So, That's what we want. <laughs> as we as we get close to the end of our time here, um, you have any advice to young professionals entering business or workforce? I, I love how you, like many in our show, have had a path. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a PhD. You're in, you know, the, the law field, and then you like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm moving on. Any advice to young professionals in entering business or the workforce? I can't say strongly enough how important I think it is to spend a day in the life of something you think you want to do. You know, we have these idealized visions in our mind of what being a certain type of professional job would entail or what the day-to-day would be like. I mean, being a lawyer, who wants to sit, who wants to think about the part about combing through contracts with a fine-tooth comb and reading all the fine print? No, you think about you know, I don't know, um, to kill a mockingbird. You think about the big law courtroom scenes and the the glory of being in a courthouse, but how about the drudgery behind it? Um, Mm -hmm. As much as you might not recognize the negative aspects to a job, you might not recognize the wonderful benefits of, of a job you might not have considered very seriously. If you do go shadow somebody, you mentioned you're working with a PM at our company, Angel, 
she's somebody who's who's signed up to let some young women who are um, three out of 20 construction management uh, majors in the school they're going to in, in California here by, by us in Los Angeles, spend the day following her, taking them out to a job site, wow. seeing what she does, sitting over her computer, how well she studies her plans. You know, she's got a few exciting projects she's working on in the Metro rail line. They would love to go spend the day with her and see the projects. I think people should do that. And everybody is happy to be a mentor, even if just for a day. Don't feel like you're you're being a pain in their neck. People are honored to think, here's some young kid who's considering doing what I do with my life. Would I mind if they spend the day with me? No, they're probably honored and touched, really. Mm -hmm. It's heartwarming to know that they want to know more about what you do, and they're happy to do it. So I would say to every young kid, go out there, talk to people who do what you think you want to do. Maybe you don't want to do it after you've spent the day with them. Maybe you want to specialize in a small little area of what that is that they do, but it'll help define what it is you decide, what you decide to major in. And I think it's crazy to think that people should have this figured out by high school. <laughs> I came remain out of college. With, oh my God, remain flexible always. I still don't really know what I want to be when I grow up and I'm still, I'm still tweaking that as I go. I don't know yeah. that I ever will. No, I know we're all faced with that. Um, as we conclude, any are there any routines or minds, anything that you feel like help keep you grounded personally or professionally? I'm always interested in this question. You know, different people have different routines as you know how much they hydrate, what kind of what kind of nutrition they do, how they exercise, what they do in the mornings, how much sleep they get. I mean, there are any are there any specific things like daily routines that help keep you grounded? You feel like keep you moving forward that you'd like to share? I, I love to travel. So it's probably having a trip on the calendar planned. You know, I'll be looking into details. I'll be planning the next trip. It's not something I necessarily do every day physically, but it's something in the back of my mind. And I've read that people who have a trip or a vacation planned on their calendar are happier people. And as soon as you come back from a trip, what makes it less depressing is already knowing where your next trip is going to be. If you love to travel like I do, COVID was my worst nightmare, you know, okay. not not being it canceling the trips that I had previously had scheduled for 2020 and 2021. But yeah. uh, now knowing that things are starting to open up again, I did take one trip. I'm planning the next trip. For me, it's knowing the light at the end of my tunnel is going off and exploring something unknown where every single day isn't a set routine where mm. I don't know what I'm going to encounter. That's that's what I love more than anything in my spare time. That's great. Yeah. I've not mastered that yet where it is wonderful to come back from a trip and already have the next trip on your calendar and have them planned in advance. I know Dan Sullivan, the head of strategic coach and entrepreneurial coaching organization, he says that you really should plan your free time first, your, your personal time first and, and plan it, you know, big things a year in advance, a quarter in advance, smaller things, weeks in weeks in advance, so that you know what's up, because that's the things that are rejuvenating, both prior to and returning from. It's still something I need to work on. But my wife is a; she loves travel like that as well. She loves the adventure of travel and getting off the beaten path as well, and not going to the prescribed things, but just finding the fun stuff, you know. So that's really good. Thanks for that. Um, wow. Well, John, when you think about it, how few American workers take their vacation time every year? I know. I mean, that's what the Europeans have over us. They've got the month of August completely planned out and shut down for the most part and take their off time very seriously. We're a little too workaholic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We had to recently, actually every year we have to send out a memo saying, by the way, you can only carry this much vacation over, blah, 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 blah. Vacation isn't to just accrue as a long-term benefit. Vacation is for rejuvenation and replenishment. And we encourage you to take it for your personal health and wellness. And that always has an impact on people. Like take, take the vacation. Don't, don't sit on it forever. We've had people that actually lost vacation time. You know, they had 300 hours oh. accrued, you know, when they left. Yeah. I had a guy that had over 300 hours and we used to not have a policy about it. We had to create a policy that said, you know, you can only carry over 40 more hours than your annual, but the maximum payout is this. Um, because we wanted to be fair to the to the staff member and also fair to the corporation. But, you know, you, you don't want to get to where you have 300 hours of vacation time. Well, you know, John, like a lot of these corporate policies, 
people will follow it if the people at the top do it and set the example. So if you take your vacation and people see that it's, Hey, if it's okay for the top guy at our company to go off for two weeks and not be clued in every day to what's going on, then it's okay for me to do it at my level. Yeah. Well said. Well, we are going to adjourn now. Um, Thank you for your time. Thank you for your, uh, kind of educating us somewhat on marketing, on what Jeru Glass does, on what you do as a marketer. Um, any final words before we sign off? Um, other than recommending to all companies out there, if you're not actively engaged in a very strong marketing program and strategy, you're missing a huge opportunity and you need to get on board. Thank you. Thank you for that. Spoken from an experienced Sage, I will say, sage marketer, um, Barbara. Well, thank, thank you, you. John. <laughs> and thank. Yeah, it's been a pleasure uh, knowing you, and since we met, and congratulations on the growth and just your engagement there at Jeru Glass. And thanks for being on the show. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, she's Barb Cutsos. I'm John Wheaton. Um, We're going to sign off. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. Have a great day.